You're listening to Gareth Jones on Radio Free Leader. Welcome to Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Burkus, best-selling author and recovering academic, and this is the show that tears down the wall between the ivory tower and the corner office. Each episode brings you an outstanding thinker to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date with Radio Free Leader and get some great stuff we don't share on the show by joining our community. You can sign up on the show notes page for this episode at davidberkus.com slash 738 or text Radio Free to 33444 if you're on your phone and in the United States. We even get you caught up with our Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox so you can listen in just one click. Again, that's davidberkus.com slash 738 or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. This week, we're talking to Gareth Jones. Gareth is a brilliant thinker and author. He is co-author of the book, Why Should Anyone Be Led by You? and co-author of the follow-up to that, Why Should Anyone Work Here? It's a fascinating conversation about what it takes to create authentic organizations, to create organizations where people do their best work, and to create organizations that believe that people fundamentally do want to do good work that amplifies their strengths, allows them to be who they are, and interacts with the rest of their life. It's a fantastic book. We have a great discussion about how organizations ought be designed or redesigned in order to let people do their best work, and in order to answer the question, why should anyone work here? So without further ado, our interview with Gareth Jones. So who are you and what do you do? Okay, I'm uh, Professor Gareth Jones. I'm visiting professor at IE Business School in Madrid, which is a great place to be a professor, I have to say. But I haven't spent my whole life being an academic. I have held a number of big jobs in business. I was in the music business. I was the global HR director of Polygram, which was at that time the biggest music company in the world. And my most recent proper job in business was as HR director for and director of internal communications for the BBC, which is an organization you might have heard of. No, no, never. No, I'm kidding. I'm a rabid <laughs> Sherlock fan. So I, right. my choice. only complaint about the BBC is they can't churn out Sherlock episodes fast enough. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's to do with talent because it's about getting the writers and the actors aligned. No, I, I totally agree. And, and actually, that's kind of an interesting segue, right? In this, one of the things that I see as a theme throughout all of your work is this idea of how does an organization best design itself or how do leaders of an organization best design it in order to let people do their best work? And, you know, we're, we're kind of here on the occasion of the new book, Why Should Anyone Work Here? But we were talking a bit offline about Clever, one of your books before that, which is all about how do you create an organization and how do you create a leadership structure that lets the most creative, most clever people work. And of course, the this is this new book is actually the follow-up to the classic Why Should Anyone Be Led by You, which is again kind of this question of how do you design an organization that lets people do the work and the role of authenticity in doing all of that? Am I am I making vague assumptions about what your motivations behind all this work was, or am I hitting it pretty close? Not at all, David. All I'd say is, if you don't mind me being gloomy for a moment. No, no, go for it. It's not just about the most talented and, and the cleverest. If you look at the global data on engagement, roughly 40% of people are disengaged from their work. Now, if you think about that in terms of hard numbers, think about that in terms of loss of productivity, it's huge. If you think about it in terms of human misery, it's gargantuan. You see, whether we like it or not, most of us spend the bulk of our adult waking lives at work. 
They ought to be places where we can be our best selves. But for roughly 40% of people, they're actively disengaged from their work. And I suppose our obsessions, Rob and I's obsessions really for 30 years of being trying to create workplaces where people can truly express themselves. And our rather simple observation is that if you could design organizations like that and you could encourage leaders to help build places like that, you would have highly successful organizations. So this isn't a sort of nice to have. This isn't a kind of, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if work was better? These would be highly successful commercial and public sector organizations. I guess there's an even more old-fashioned idea underlying all of this, which is that work is a species-defining characteristic. Only human beings work. Hmm. Um, Or as Karl Marx puts it rather eloquently, bees make great buildings, they just don't know they're doing it. (laughs) We do. And it's what defines us. So our obsession has been, let's make workplaces, places where people can do their best stuff. And the chances are, that they will be highly successful organizations. Hey, I definitely agree with you there. I, you know, I've always sort of lamented this idea that at least, you know, I live in the United States where there's this weird ideal that, I mean, it's one of the countries most obsessed with work in, at least in terms of hours spent working and hours not spent on vacation. And then there's this romantic idea of being financially independent so that you never have to go to work. And I, I just don't see it. I, I feel like most, like you had said, most humans, I think, want to contribute something, want to create something, want to do some form of work so that even if you didn't have to work for pay, you would still find a reason to work. Now, I think there's probably, you know, maybe 10% of the population that would be perfectly uh, acceptable living on a beach and drinking Mai Tais for the rest of their life. But the other 90%, I think, really do want to do good work and want to work in an organization that lets them do that. I think that's true. and I, But I think it's it's in the United States in particular, of course, the one of the huge influences in in the 20th century has been Henry Ford. Mm. And Henry Ford's view was, I'll make life at work pretty unpleasant, but don't worry, I'll pay you better. (laughs) And and therefore, you can be a human being at the weekend. So his deal was, at work, you'll just do what you're told, you'll you'll become the vehicle of scientific management, but I'll pay you quite well for that. And then at the weekend, you can drive your Ford car and you can take your family out and you can act like a human being. And I think that's a huge mistake because you need to be, in order to be a good husband, mother, father, daughter, son, and so on, in order to have a fulfilled domestic life, you need to have a fulfilled work life. Hmm. I think, no, I think that's really true. It makes a lot of sense. I was actually just reading a lot of research on work-life balance as being kind of basically impossible, right? And in a sense, work-life integration is sort of the better way to do it. If you're trying to keep those two spheres distinct and separate and then find an appropriate balance between them, you're just going to experience frustration when one sphere butts up against the other. But if you figure out a way to make it just another part of your life and you're a good everything, like you were saying, you experience a lot less stress. It's it's actually a really good segue to one of the ways, one of the things I love about the way that the Why Should Anyone Work Here is set up is that it's set up, each chapter is sort of a different philosophy and some of them are very counterintuitive, which um, you know, I, I love uh, because my new book, Under New Management, looks at a lot of different, you know, specific people practices that, that are super counterintuitive. So we, we do have a bias for the counterintuitive. 
But the very first one is actually this idea of letting people be themselves. And you know, we were talking about the scientific management, the Henry Ford sort of idea of, I need you to do a very specific type of work and I have no room for rough edges. I need you to fit to be a human cog in this machine. And then what we find now, we're looking back at that era and going, no, actually amplifying people's differences instead of trying to minify, minimize and create uniformity actually does create better work. Well, that's right. Um, so a couple of sort of one-liners here, creativity increases with diversity and it declines with sameness. That's true. So one question your listeners might like to ask themselves is, does your organization need to be creative and innovative? Now, my <laughs> guess is that 95% of organizations will say, yes, we do. See, it's not just software companies, pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies. It's power companies, water companies, railroad companies. It's retail. It's food. We need innovation across the piece because the world outside our organizations is changing so rapidly. So one reason why diversity really matters is that it is that it fuels innovation and creativity. The second thing I think in, in that chapter of the book is that we're not talking about diversity in the way it's conventionally measured. You know, how many ethnic minorities do you employ? How many women? How many gay people? And so on. This is a more fundamental kind of sense of difference. It's about being yourself at work. It's about taking yourself to work. Now, that's not to say that those conventional measures of diversity aren't really important, gender, race, and so on. They're very, very important. But if we're not careful and they simply become human resource department initiatives, they produce almost the exact opposite effect. So it's, it's no good bringing in diverse people into an organization, and then the moment they get there, expecting them to behave the same. Hmm. That, that, then you, then you've, you've shot yourself in the foot because you've brought in diverse people and then you've turned them into the same thing. I, this is an old story now, and I, I hope it isn't true anymore, but I shall never forget the first time I saw a room full of IBM sales stuff and they actually looked the same. <laughs> I mean, they even looked the same. Yeah. And that's a bit of a worry in a, in a business, which right now, of course, needs innovation and creativity like, like no one else. Otherwise, they'll just become a kind of 20th century dinosaur in a world that's transformed. Yeah. No, I agree. I'm, I'm actually reminded of a conversation I had with an executive director of a, a fairly large nonprofit. And I remember the board telling her that, oh, we need more diversity among your staff. And she said, what do you mean? I have this person who's super liberal and this person who's conservative. And, you know, th this person believes this and this person believes that. And this, you know, and, and they said, no, 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 no. We mean you need more people of color. And she just looks back and goes, well, why? Like, I mean, yeah. that's, that is important. Yes. But if you're just looking at it as, well, we are not meeting the percentage that we had attributed to it. That's great. But the intellectual diversity, in a sense, the, the cognitive diversity is what we're hoping we get for with those metrics. And if we're not getting it, then we've got to ask ourselves, well, for why? Absolutely correct. You see, in the book, we tell the story of, of a place that really celebrates diversity and it's full of white middle-aged men. Hmm. But they're highly diverse. They're highly diverse. And the, the levels of cognitive conflict in the organization are very high. By the way, cognitive conflict is normally a good thing. It drives creativity. So the clash of ideas is good. And that's how we get innovation. What we don't want is people saying, oh, I'm not listening to you because you're David. I can't stand David, so I'm not going to listen to anything he says. That's going to that's gonna stymie creativity and innovation. Yeah, no, agreed. So I, I want to pivot a little bit too to, to talk about kind of once you bring those people in, how do you keep them from being 
the same because I sort of see the answer to that in a different chapter, which is this idea of building on people's strengths and interests, allowing them to sort of pursue both of those things rather than say, you know, like the Henry Ford approach, this is actually what we need for you. So I don't care what you brought to the table. I need this. I need for you to do this. Instead, celebrating strengths, allowing people to chase their interests turns out to be a more a more useful way to do it. Absolutely. Again, this is a sort of an idea that I've come at, I, I suppose, through experience. Change is good for most of us. For most of us, changing what we do is good for us. It, it may not be in the first month, but six months later, if you give someone a new challenge, they nearly always say, I'm really glad I did that. I had a very instructive experience when I was a young academic. I got asked to do a, a piece of consulting with a very famous pharmaceutical company, arguably then the greatest pharma company in the world. And pharma companies have something called a pilot plant, which is where they find out whether you can make pharmaceutical products in commercially viable quantities. And I would say this, this pilot plant was maybe in the top 40% in, in the industry. Of course, in this organization, being in the top 40% just wasn't good enough. Everybody had to be top quartile. So I thought, well, I don't know much about this, but I'll go and interview people and find out how they feel about their work. So I interviewed the first one and said, you know, how long have you been doing this job? 12 years. Next one. How long have you been doing this job? 15 years. How long have you been doing your job? Oh, this is my 20th. Well, they'd all been doing the same job for so long. So all I did was to get sort of everybody to slightly change their job, to kind of, you know, move, move one step up the value chain, just to kind of, well, the, the effect was almost magical. I felt like Harry Potter because a year later, the chief executive said to me, I don't know what the hell you did with the pilot plant, but we're now the best in the industry. Because every time someone had taken on a new challenge, they'd improved their performance. And by the way, measures of morale, engagement, and so on also went in the right direction. So I think the idea that having people follow their enthusiasms, build on their strengths, try something new is a way of fueling both individual growth. And of course, through individual growth, you get organizational growth. So I, I guess here's my follow-up question to so much. And, and by the way, I'm, I'm totally okay if the answer is just abandon this entirely. It's something I've advocated for in the past. But so many of our sort of performance management systems and systems that we use to develop talent are based on this idea that one ought to be well-rounded, that one ought, that one has weaknesses in some areas that need to be shored up before your senior leadership potential, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you, how do you balance I the desire to disagree? <laughs> I absolutely disagree. This is a soccer a soccer analogy, so it may not work for you, David. But, but if Lionel Messi is in your football team, you don't say to Lionel Messi, listen, you know, your heading ability is really poor. You know, you're going to have to stay late at training and, and become a better header of the ball. Absolutely not. You say to Lionel Messi, you are the best guy with the ball at his feet in the world. The moment you get the ball at your feet, especially in the opponent's half, I want you to dribble at them. That's what you say to them. Hmm. Uh, one of the former chief executives of Unilever, which is one of my favorite organizations, always used to say, I like spiky executives. <laughs> you know, I like them to be really good at something. And then the things they're not so good at, we'll get someone else to do that. We'll get someone who's spiky on that. So I sometimes, especially if I'm talking to an HR audience and slightly to be provocative, I say, I'm looking forward to a bonfire of competence models. I love it. Do do you find that at the at the senior executive level, the people that you work with get that, but it's it's the HR and the the talent development level that doesn't, or is it just one culture gets it and one culture doesn't? 
Oh, I, I, I fear that, especially in big, and I do have some sympathy with this, in big organizations, you probably need some sort of standards about how you want people to behave. And so I noticed, for example, that Unilever now, they do have something called Unilever leadership standards. What they don't have is what they used to have, which is a highly prescriptive competence model. One of my favorite organizations in the new book is an organization called Ove Arab, the consulting engineers. And the chairman says, in our performance management systems, we never have four objectives. Because if you only have four objectives, you'll never get the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> and I sometimes say to audiences full of you know, executives, I say, how many of you have written KPIs, key performance indicators? And of course, you know, everyone's done it. I say, are they ever complete? No. They're never complete. There's always some aspect of the work where you can add something special. I think retail is very interesting, by the way. If you think about your favorite retail encounters, they're where somebody doesn't say to you, have a nice day. It's where they go slightly beyond what you might expect. I remember being in, I, I, one of my clients gave me a pre-charged credit card in the United States, and I went to a shop and to buy some men's clothes, actually. And I can remember the woman who served me like it was yesterday, and this is probably 10 years ago, because she personalized the whole encounter. She made the whole thing like, I'm going to make you look great when you leave this store. And I actually sort of believed her, you know, <laughs> oh, not that color. Oh, no, no, that color's terrible. It looks awful. You know, she was kind of very personal and not like she was following a script at all. So I think retail is a really interesting one. Or think about, this is one another one of my obsessions, think about your favorite bar. Your favorite bar is where people remember what you drink, there you remember when you want to be left alone, when you want to talk, which football team you support. They personalize the encounter. They bring themselves to the encounter. And that's what makes retail interesting, actually. At the end of our book, our books always end slightly miserably. You know, they always end up by saying this is all terribly difficult and, you know, good luck with it. And of course, our American editors always say, "You listen, Rob and Gareth, you can't end a book like that. You've got to end it with a slightly more uplifting note. And so we went back through our research notes and we extracted, I think, about half a dozen quotations from people talking about their work. And there's one or two that really, really stick in my mind. One was somebody who ran a department of a, of a supermarket, and it was a woman. And she said, my job is to put great food on people's tables and to encourage them to try something new. I thought this is fantastic. You know, so it's Sunday lunch with the family, but it's actually, you know, trying some harissa sauce or a new vegetable and so on. And then there's a supervisor at a BMW factory in Germany. And, and you have to say this in a German action, accent to get the full feeling, but he says, I love to see a six series roll off the line. I know someone will have the ride of their life. <laughs> <laughs> and you can almost feel their sort of pleasure in what it is that they do. And of course, out of the pleasure of what they do, guess what we get? Performance. We get yeah. high performance. Yeah. No, and that's a great point. And actually sort of circles back to one of the things we were talking about in the very beginning, which is that you're right, that it's not about how do you create an organization that lets the clever people thrive. It is more how do you, if, if you do these things right, almost everybody gets the chance to do clever work, to do good work, et cetera, and drive meaning from that. Absolutely right. We, we have a slide in our presentation which shows somebody pouring a pint of Guinness. And, and I often ask the audience, you know, are there any Guinness drinkers in the room? And usually 
is about 30% of Guinness drinkers. And I said, well, what's the difference between a kind of averagely poured pint of Guinness and a really carefully poured pint of Guinness? And of course, from a consumer point of view, the difference is huge. It's huge. And then I say, well, why don't people want to pour perfect pints of Guinness? Well, guess what? Mainly they do. Hmm. If we create an environment in which they've got time to let the Guinness settle and so on, they'll enjoy their work more and the consumers will enjoy the product more. And then there's a lovely quotation from Studs Terkel's wonderful book, Working. And he talks to a woman who guts tuna fish. And gutting fish regularly comes out as one of the least satisfying pieces of work that anyone can do. But this woman says, I love gutting tuna fish. The guts feel like velvet in my fingers. Hmm. So it's surprising what people can get meaning from, isn't it? Yeah, totally. And a little weird, but I guess that's what happens when you when you celebrate individual diversities, when you play to different yes. strengths, etc. You, you you find yourself going, well, I don't understand that at all, but I am really glad that they do and that they love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've yeah. just been on my way from my tennis club. I stopped off to buy some plants in the garden center. And of course, I often say to the people who work in the garden center, I wish I had your job. You, you spend all day talking about things which are absolutely key to your life. Plants, garden design, what will thrive in the shade, what needs full sun, what kind of sort. You could almost feel their enthusiasm. And by the way, they're probably not that well paid either. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great point. That's a good note actually to transition a bit on. So the book again is Why Should Anyone Work Here? What It Takes to Create an Authentic Organization. There's also Why Should Anyone Be Led by You? There's Clever. There's the character of the corporation. There's a bunch of really, really good things to read on that. But I want to pivot from that to you and ask you our questions that we ask all guests. Are you ready? I'm ready. What's the best advice you've ever received? If someone offers you a new challenge, take it. Hmm, hmm, that's good. What's an average day look like for you? Well, I try not to have average days, though, of course, sometimes you have to have average days. I try to work as much as possible in conjunction with my body clock. I work better later in the day than I do first thing in the morning. Now, some days I have to get up very early for a flight and I do it because that's a role obligation. But I try and make sure that I'm doing my most creative work at the time of the day when my mind and body are in best nick. I do try and do some physical exercise every day. So that could be walking the dog or it could be going to the gym or it could be playing tennis. But I do try and do something if I can every day. I think that's quite important, actually. I think there's lots and lots of evidence that for particularly people as they get, well, well for adults, actually, all, almost all the evidence on exercise is it's very good for you. It's good for your brain. It's good for your body. It's good for your soul. So I do try and do a bit of exercise. Hmm. What are you reading right now? I've just finished a book about, it was given to me by a school teacher friend of mine. It's a, written by an American author. It's about, it's called Wonder. It's about a little boy with gross facial deformities. Hmm. Gross facial deformities. And it's about how he comes to terms with his identity. The guy who lent me the book said, I promise you, you'll cry when you read it. And I got about three quarters of the way through it and I hadn't shed a tear. And then for the last quarter, I cried all the time. <laughs> Though I have to tell you, it has a very happy ending, so it's quite good. And I usually combine reading something like that with reading some hard non-fiction, so history or philosophy. Well, one other habit I have is I try not to work in August, and instead of working in August, I choose an author who I've never read before, who I feel like I should. You know, I'm sure we've all got little secret gaps in our knowledge where we think I really should have read this and I never have. 
Mm. So I picked an author and I decide to read them over the course of August. And sometimes it's a wild success and sometimes it's a complete waste of time. <laughs> and I spent a summer of, a little while ago trying to read Carl Jung mm. and I couldn't get anywhere with it at all. And I think a couple of years ago, I decided to read Spinoza's Ethics, which was a really, really hard read. But I'm so glad that I persisted with it. Hmm. No, that's really cool. That's a habit I think I'm going to steal. What do you believe that most people don't? What do I believe that most people don't? I'm not sure I can answer that question easily. I, I say I have three children, by the way. And I say to them, when you meet people, you should start off with the assumption that they're good people. Hmm that they are going to try and be cooperative and collaborate and so on. I said, just occasionally in your life, you'll find people who aren't like that. And when you do find people like that, you, you hit them hard. But start off with the assumption of positive intent. Now, I don't know how many people believe that, but I've found that to be more or less true in my life. You'll, you'll find a few people who do bad things, but mainly people want to try and do good. Mm, I like it. So last question, the title of the show is Radio Free Leader. In your view, what makes someone a leader? You want to be a great leader, be yourself. Right? That's about authenticity, but that's not enough. More, so you have to kind of turn up the volume if you want to be a leader. And then finally, with skill. There are leadership skills which you can acquire and practice. Since I've just come off the tennis court, it's exactly the same as learning to be a better tennis player. Hmm. If your backhand's not much good, get out there with a coach and practice. Hmm. And it's the same with leadership. Often disappointed by senior executives in organizations who, in my view, their communication skills are really poor. I just finished a piece of work with a big global bank. And at each event we ran, a member of the executive committee came. And I would say that of the eight people who came, five were adequate but no more than adequate. One of them said to me, I'm sorry, I can't speak to a room this big. There were about 100 people in the room, by the way. Hmm. You'll have to interview me. And I said, I don't think you can do your job properly. If you are on the executive committee of a major global bank, you should be able to hold a room with 100 people in it for 40 minutes. Hmm. And if you can't do it, you need to practice and learn those skills. So in order to be a leader, be yourself, be authentic, more but critically, and this is where I think the European literature diverges from the American literature, with skill. Hmm. Leadership is a skillful role performance. That's good. That's a great note to end on. So the book again is uh, Why Should Anyone Work Here? The prior books, Why Should Anyone Be Led by You? And a whole bunch of work that you and your co-author, Rob, have, have done that is amazing and helps people develop those skills. So I encourage everybody to check that out. In the meantime, Gareth, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. It's been a real pleasure. I feel like I could have talked for longer. <laughs>